come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. May God bless to our understanding this reading from the Holy Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, as your word has been read, and now as I seek to proclaim it faithfully, I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, and not only me, but all uh, the hearers this morning, help us to worship in spirit and truth. Help us to uh, cast our faith wholly and completely upon Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles open to John chapter 4, and for those who are visiting, uh, it is our practice to uh, preach through books of the Bible, so we have been working our way through John, and we looked at the first 15 verses last week. As we begin looking at this passage, let me ask you this question. Why did God create you? Why did He put you here on earth? Why did God save you from your sins? What is your God-given purpose for existing? The answer to all these questions is simply this, that God created us to bring glory to Himself. And we can look at hundreds of passages uh, throughout the Bible to confirm this, but I'm going to refrain. Uh, I do want to refer you to one chapter in the Bible where the Apostle Paul uh, says this three times, that we exist, that we are saved from our sins, that our purpose really is to glorify God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul says, In love God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. And then he answers this question uh, in terms of our existence in verse 6. 
Why? To the praise of His glorious grace that He has freely given us in the One He loves. Or Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, In Christ we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And then again in verses 13 and 14 in Ephesians 1, And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, we were created and put here on earth and saved from our sins in order that God might be glorified. Our purpose in existing then points to our main task. Our main task in being put here on earth in being saved from our sins is to worship God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you're eating or drinking, whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. But there's one big problem. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human race has rejected our God-given task of worshiping Him. Uh, because of Adam and Eve's uh, sin, because of the sin nature that that is within us, we reject and rebel against God. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Romans chapter one, verses twenty-one through twenty-three says, "For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles." But since we will not seek God, God brings glory to Himself by seeking us. I love 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This idea of God seeking us, of God um, uh, seeking sinners, takes us right to the heart of our passage this morning. Uh, look at verses at, at John 4, 23 and 24. You've already heard it this morning. Joe read it. We also use it as our call to worship. Uh, verse 23, Jesus said, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so God is seeking worshipers. God is remaking us. He's transforming us to be what He created us to be. He created us to be worshipers of God who worship in spirit and in truth. And so um, this is um, 
stated explicitly in our passage. What's happening in our passage to help you remember from last week? Jesus had uh, was traveling up through the region of Samaria. He met this woman at the well. This woman was not a worshiper of God. Not only that, this woman was rude. She was off-putting. In his conversation with this woman, uh, she heaped scorn and ridicule upon Jesus. But all the while, in spite of her contempt for him, Jesus is seeking to make her a worshiper of God. All of us who are worshipers of God, all of us who are Christians, came from the same place as this woman. We didn't come from Samaria. But we were not worshipers of God. We were rebels. Um, And uh, none of us were born into this world with a natural inclination to worship God. I want you to notice Jesus' method as He's seeking her. Uh, Last week we saw that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries by asking a Samaritan, and not only a Samaritan, but a woman, for a drink of water. Uh, This was scandalous for him to do. But Jesus was not looking at her as being a woman. He was not looking at her as being a Samaritan. He was looking at her as being a creature created in the image of God. And so when she begins to make her uh, rude remarks toward Jesus, he ignored her ridicule and he offered her living water that he said would give her eternal life. And even with this offer, she continued to ridicule. So we come then to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Uh, And he made this the condition upon which she would receive the living water. Go call your husband. Tell him to come here and you'll get this living water. Jesus knew, of course, that the man that she was living with was not her husband and that she had been married five times previously. Sometimes, if you want to grab someone's attention, you might have to scandalize them. Unfortunately, for some people to be willing to hear the gospel, you may have to reach their heart through an open wound. And this is what Jesus is doing here. And I want to take just a moment to to highlight Jesus' method because we have several here in the congregation that um, that love to preach the gospel. In fact, um, we had six men from our church that went out to meet people uh, last Saturday. They went up along the, um, the parade route to meet people and simply uh, share the gospel with them. And so I thought, well, here's, here's uh, a way to encourage them. I don't see any of them here this morning. Um, so maybe I'll go and evangelize them after. <laughs> um, but uh, here's a tip on how to share your faith effectively. The first step in sharing the gospel with another person is to win their emotions. You win their emotions. When you win the person's emotions, you win the opportunity to get a fair hearing for the gospel. You can win a person's emotions, maybe sometimes with just a simple smile. Just a nice, simple, welcoming smile. May draw someone in. 
Uh, you may win their emotions with a little humor. I've seen uh, people uh, do this. Or you can win the emotions with a well-timed arrow at the person's behavior. This seems to be what Jesus is doing here. Uh, he's not judging this woman in terms of the way we think of judging others. Um, he's not trying to condemn her. Uh, he, In other words, he's not trying to make her feel bad. That's not his purpose here. He's simply uh, grasp, grasping um, her emotions so that she will listen more to the important issue of who is the Messiah. And so he says then in verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. And he knew that she had no husband. In fact, the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's funny how Jesus says, Go call your husband. And it does seem to, in some way, grab hold of her emotions uh, because she becomes noticeably less talkative, a bit more receptive to what he has to say. And then I've already mentioned what uh, Christ said in response, but again it's worth um, noting that Jesus knew her situation even though He had never met her. He knew that she uh, was not married. He knew that she had had five previous husbands. The man she was now living with was not her husband. Christ knows the specifics of all of our hidden sins. You will not be able to hide them on the day of judgment. In fact, they are not hidden from Him now. And although this woman is engaged and is listening, apparently she does not like, hear, like what she's hearing. So she changed the subject in verses 20 and 21. And here's my paraphrase of what I think she's saying to Jesus. I think she's saying, Why, yes! As long as we're talking about the subject of my adultery, what's your stance on the issue of where people should go and worship? In other words, I think she's trying to change the subject. Listen to verse 20 and 21. After Jesus immediately had just said, um, of course you're not married, I, I understand, I know that. And so then she says in response, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem uh, you will worship the Father. Again, for those of you who are sharing your faith, and love sharing your faith. Notice Jesus' method. He allows her to go on to the next subject without going back to the issue of her adultery. Why, why would He let that issue go? I think the reason is He's gotten her attention. That was His main goal. And so now He engages her in regard to worship. The Samaritans believed 
that they should worship God on Mount uh, Gerizim because Moses and the Israelites, they worshiped there on Mount Gerizim when they entered into the Promised Land. Um, and then Jacob also worshiped there and built a, an altar there. But God later told the Israelites that they were to worship only in one place, and that was in Jerusalem. They were to offer their sacrifices exclusively in Jerusalem. And so Jesus sees this as just a distraction, a distraction, so he refuses then to be distracted. She wants to bring up this idea of worship. Uh, where do we worship? And he basically says in verse 21, it doesn't matter where you worship. Because it's impossible, because it's possible to worship in vain, whether you worship on Mount Gerizim or whether you worship in Jerusalem. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, "These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me." And so Jesus stays with this issue of worship, but. Uh, he does not allow this issue of the where of worship become the, the main issue, but rather the how and the when, uh, I'm sorry, the whom of worship. Listen to verses 23 and 24 again. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does Jesus mean here in this passage? Well, let's look at the how of worship. And then we'll look at the whom of worship. Uh, the how of worship. How should you worship? Well, who better to learn from than Jesus Himself? And He says that true worship is worship that is in spirit and truth. Notice if you're looking in your copy of the Scriptures that the word Spirit is not capitalized. All the translations, the King James, the New International Version, the English Standard Version that uh, we are reading from this morning, New American Standard, none of these versions have the word Spirit capitalized. You'd think that the word Spirit would be capitalized because you'd think that worshiping would have to do with the Holy Spirit. Well, it does have to do with the Holy Spirit, but this is not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is our souls. Our worship must be in our soul and must be according to truth. Jesus says that it doesn't depend on where you are uh, in terms of your physical, geographical location. Rather, Worship takes place deep inside a person's soul. It takes place in our spirit, is what he's saying here. Authentic worship happens only when in the very core of our being, or, or the core of our being is employed in worship, in worshiping God. Outward performance may or may not be worship. Charles Spurgeon has it right when he says God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. If our hearts do not sing, we have not sung at all. Kent Hughes says sometimes we sing, but we do not worship. Sometimes we pray with our lips, 
but worship does not take place. Sometimes we give, but we do not worship. So what about the worship that you are offering to God this morning? Is He receiving your worship as authentic, as true worship? Is it arising from within your spirit? Is it flowing out of your heart? True worship of God is deeply emotional. True worship is the opposite of empty formalism. True worship doesn't simply go through the motions. True worship is not simply satisfied with moving through the elements in the bulletin to to arrive at the end. True worship flows from your spirit. But true worship is not emotionalism. I'm sure I've told you before about a time that I was at a Christian concert and uh, during the concert the drummer was given a solo and I was a a pretty new Christian, only been a Christian probably a few months at this time and as the drummer played his solo he got faster and faster as he went around the different drums and uh, I noticed a woman sitting in the, the row next to me and she had her hands lifted up in worship And as the drum solo got faster and faster, she began to tense up. And as it reached a crescendo, she was shaking. And all of a sudden, she passed out. They would say, slain in the Spirit. And um, she was not worshiping God. She was having an emotional experience. Jesus says, true worship not only flows from the heart and is certainly an emotional experience, but it is grounded in truth. It is worship that is in spirit and truth. True worship engages the head as well as the heart. And the content of our worship is God. We are to worship what is true about God. We are to to declare to God His worthiness. That's what worship is. We don't simply just make things up. We look at what God's Word says about Him. And then we, from our spirits, declare to God His worthship. And so our worship is always to be in accordance with what God has revealed about Himself. To worship God means that your mind is going to be interacting with the truth about God. I don't see Sylvester here this morning. I was... I have a a little illustration. I was thinking about Sylvester because I get these Twitter pictures from Sylvester whenever he's grilling. And these big, massive, beautiful um, hunks of beef are are on the grill, all seasoned up. And, um, And I was thinking about this whole issue of worship and I, I came up with this uh, this idea of trying to explain how worship takes place using a, the illustration from a grill. In the grill, of course, you've got the propane tank. The propane in the tank is like the truth, um, the truth about God. And then we have the burners. 
That's where the worship takes place. And it's like our souls are the burners. That's where the, the, the truth is ignited within us and burns. But we need that spark to get it going. We need that power to ignite the, the propane. The reason I'm thinking about this is my, my own grill, the little button that you push to get the, the fire going has stopped working. It doesn't even click when I, when I mash it anymore. It stopped working on all days on Father's Day. And so I've been suffering a little bit and figured out how to, how to light it manually without blowing myself up. But it's missing that spark. You can have the truth of God. And you can certainly have a soul that where the truth is to burn, where the worship is to take place. But the worship will not take place without that spark. And I don't mean to minimize the, the work of the Holy Spirit, but He's that spark. He ignites the truth of God in our souls. We need the Holy Spirit if we are going to worship God. For us to simply go through the motions without relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, that just becomes empty emotionalism. And it's just, I'm sorry, empty, uh, it becomes empty formal worship. And it's just as bad as the emotionalism that I described a few minutes ago that's devoid of truth. But we need the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit inflames our worship, what happens? Well, the beef is cooked. And again, I don't mean to... to um, demean the, the, the fruits of the Spirit. But it's as we worship God that's empowered by the Spirit that is, is built upon the truth about God that our souls are heated up and our repentance is produced. Our faith grows. Our zeal becomes hotter. In other words, our obedience and our growth in the Christian life flows out of our worship that is, um, is grounded in God's truth, heated within our souls, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this woman's attitude uh, in in verse 25, after Jesus tells her where true worship, what true worship is, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And so her attitude is beginning to soften. She's not ridiculing Jesus anymore. It seems like she's still maybe trying to change the subject a little bit. But there's a softness there. All the while, Jesus is seeking worshipers for the Father. But notice who He points her to. He says, the Father seeking worshipers, but then He points her in verse 26 to Himself. Jesus said to, to her, I who speak to you am He. 
when you cast your faith upon Jesus Christ, you become a worshiper of the Father. When you flee to Him, when you flee to Christ, you embrace the Father. When you drink of Christ's living water, you glorify God. Now, we haven't seen yet whether this woman actually trusted in Christ. We'll see that, I think, in a couple of weeks. Um, We'll see that she does embrace Jesus Christ. In the meantime, let me ask you, have you become a worshiper of the Father that worships in spirit and in truth? Or do you just simply go through the motions? Have you drunk deeply from the wells of living water that Christ offers to sinners? Listen to Revelation 22, verse 17. Listen to the promise. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that everyone here would be a worshiper of the Father, worshiping in spirit and in truth. And I pray that we would drink deeply of the water, the living water that Christ offers to all who will come. He offers it without price because He purchased it with the price of His own blood in our behalf. Father, as we prepare to uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, I ask that You would commune with us. Help us to drink deeply from Christ and His grace. We ask in His name.